There's a song on the radio, Tell Your Heart to Beat Again, by Danny Gokey. And maybe you've heard it too. Shattered like you've never been before. The life you knew in a thousand pieces on the floor. And words fall short in times like these when this world drives you to your knees. You think you'll never get back to who you used to be. Music speaks to our soul, and at times the words in a song bring us back to a season of brokenness in our lives. For me, the season of brokenness, the most impactful event in my life, is the loss of my family, my parents' divorce. I didn't see it coming. My childhood felt like a dream. My parents were the model marriage. We had the model family. We had Friday evening family worship. We went to church every Sabbath. We honored the Sabbath. We took Sabbath hikes and afternoon bike rides. We followed all the rules. My mom sewed our Sabbath dresses, put curlers in our hair, and made homemade meals, meals that took her days of preparation in the kitchen. My parents were involved in the church. On the school board, parent-teacher association, my mom brought food to all the potlucks and joined the ladies in the kitchen while my dad chatted with the elders at the table. My sister brother and I were in private Seventh-day Adventist Christian schools, and we had all the right friends. They put us in music lessons and came to our recitals and concerts. They were a united front, cheering on the sidelines for our team sports and track races. We lived in beautiful suburbia, with Fourth of July parades and children running through the streets without a care in the world. On Sundays, we found ourselves water skiing as a family with our mastercraft. My dad taught my sister, brother, and me how to drive a boat, hold a flag, and ski the course without missing a buoy. My parents were the high school football player and cheerleader, Barbie and Ken, and I looked up to my mother thinking someday I would be beautiful like her. My father to me was strength. He was effective with intimidating and scaring all the boys away. He worked hard and was a provider for our family. It was 1994. I still remember the moment my mom spoke these words. I was 14 years old. Your father and I are getting a divorce. In that very moment, my heart sank. The best explanation I've been able to give was that it felt like the ground beneath me was swept away and that everything that felt secure and safe was no longer there. I still remember sitting across from the marriage and family counselor with my brother and sister beside me. They were completely silent. Well, I vented for over an hour about my feelings. I was told the words, children are resilient. They'll get over it. You'll get over it a huge misunderstanding of the impact of divorce on children. It wasn't until I was a young adult and I finally understood the impact of this change in my life that I had not gotten over it. I discovered the book, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, by Julia M. Lewis and Sandra Blanksley, where they found in their research that recovery from a divorce is a lot harder than we've realized, and it lasts a lot longer. Divorce profoundly changes not only the child's experience, but the whole personality of the child as she grows up and becomes an adult. For me personally, at the time of my parents' divorce, I buried my feelings deep inside and I told everyone that I was fine. Like a true middle child, I took the role as the peacemaker. However, 
The problem with saying I'm fine to keep the peace is that I was really not fine. The truth is that I began to build walls and bitterness began to emerge. Bitterness and anger began to change me. From a little girl who could not stop smiling to a girl who felt broken and alone. From a little girl whose favorite shirt was I'm talking and I can't shut up to a girl who was afraid to be vulnerable and authentic. It took 10 years for me to become honest with myself, to become vulnerable and to face the feelings of my past. <clears throat> that I had built the foundation of my security on the wrong things. 10 years for me to realize that my parents are human, just like me. We all fall down and that we are all in need of grace and mercy. As I became vulnerable, as I let go, and most importantly, as I drew closer to a relationship with Jesus, light came into the dark places of my heart and revealed that I had feelings of anger and resentment that were getting in the way of having positive relationships with those that I loved most. I began to let go. I opened my eyes, my ears, my heart to the truth that Jesus was speaking into my heart. I needed to listen and let him speak truth into my life. It was time to forgive. Perhaps there is a time in your life where you've found yourself broken, lost, shattered, or afraid. Have you ever felt alone and afraid to be vulnerable about your story? I know that I'm not alone, and the most powerful words I've ever heard in some of the most difficult times of my life have been, me too. Whatever your story may be, it's difficult to be vulnerable, and we all struggle to let ourselves be seen. We need to let ourselves be seen, to be vulnerable, because that is how we grow. We may feel that choosing to be vulnerable makes us susceptible to emotional injury, especially in being easily hurt, that it makes us susceptible to physical harm or damage. Our defensive measures are diminished or compromised when we choose to be vulnerable. Most of us don't like talking about what makes us feel vulnerable. We don't like talking about our personal brokenness. And brokenness happens to all of us, whether we're Seventh-day Adventist, Lutheran, Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Latter-day Saint, Muslim, Buddhist, or atheist. We all struggle with brokenness, whether we are red, yellow, black, or white. Dr. Brene Brown has interviewed hundreds of people as part of an ongoing study on vulnerability. She has found that as a society, we are the most in debt the most addicted in history, and that we all struggle with vulnerability. But we try and numb it. We try and numb our pain by making the uncertain certain. We say, I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. We perfect. We perfect our bodies and our children, and we do not see that we're worthy of love and belonging. And we pretend. We pretend that what we do does not have an impact on other people. We need to have the courage to tell the story of our whole heart and to have the courage to be imperfect. We need to let ourselves be seen, to be vulnerable, because that is how we grow. We must let go of who we think we should be and fully embrace vulnerability because what makes us vulnerable ultimately makes us beautiful. We must be willing to build connection with others because connection is why we're here. We need to be kind and to say, I love you first. Love is what Christianity is about. 
It's what Boulder Adventist Church is about. Live love. Love is what gives us purpose and meaning to our lives. But we all have fear of connection. We have the constant feeling of, I'm not good enough. But if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame cannot survive. We need to allow ourselves to be seen, to be vulnerable, because that is how we grow. Vulnerability is actually the birthplace of love, joy, creativity, and belonging. The truth is, you win your life back when you stop fighting vulnerability. We are naive to think that we're immune to struggle, even as Seventh-day Adventists, it just looks different for everyone. It's not something that some people or even those people go through. Being open about our brokenness does not come easily. Reliving our past is often a place that we don't want to go, and shining a light on our struggle is not what we choose to post on Instagram or Facebook because we like to be liked. The truth about our lives is harder than the lie, and we find it safer to hide into the dark than to come into the light. We need to let ourselves be seen, to love each other with our whole hearts, even without guarantee. We need to practice love and joy and really believe, I am enough. We must believe it, because then we are more kind and gentle with ourselves. Our lives become richer when we open ourselves to vulnerability. How vulnerable are we today to choose the path less traveled, a life centered on Jesus, to choose his way instead of my way or your way? As I looked to my Bible to study Jesus' response to vulnerability and brokenness, I came across two stories of Jesus and women in the Bible. First, John 8, 1 through 11, the story of Jesus forgiving an adulterous woman. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of a crowd. A woman caught in the act, naked, ashamed, brought to the feet of Jesus, and at the feet of Jesus was where she needed to be. Now imagine if you were caught in the middle of your own sin, in your anger, as you're yelling at your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, or your children, in your affair, the woman from work, the man at the gym, the friend who was really just a friend until it wasn't anymore, in your lie, in your envy or selfish ambitions, whatever it may be, caught and brought to the feet of Jesus. Or maybe for you, it's dishonoring your parents. Or maybe you've been too free with your body outside of marriage. Maybe you struggle with a jealous heart because you want what that other girl has. Or maybe for you, when you hear the latest gossip, you just can't help it, you have to pass it on. Or maybe you struggle with resentment or judging others. Whatever it may be, broken and brought to the feet of Jesus. In this story, we see a woman caught in her sin, naked, ashamed, brought to the feet of Jesus. She was vulnerable to a crowd of accusers and sitting at the feet of Jesus, the Son of God. John 8, 4-9. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned 
throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. What do we know about the adulterous woman? We know that she was probably married, and she was caught sleeping with another man who was not her husband. My thought when I read this story is, what kind of brokenness led this woman into the arms of another man? What brokenness led this man to sleep with a married woman? Where did she place her value? Did she feel loved in her marriage? Did she find her value in having a man or being loved by one? Did she value her beauty or her ability to attract women or men? What about the man? Where did he find his value, his worth? Was it in his possessions, his home, or his looks? Did he find value in the attention of this woman or the kind words she used to feed his pride? We don't know the details that led to their brokenness. What we can see is shame and fear. We see a woman who was naked and vulnerable to her accusers with a crowd ready to stone her. And in John 8, verse 7, we read about Jesus' response to her brokenness and also a significant statement about judging others and their vulnerability and shame. By saying that only a sinless person could throw the first stone, he highlighted the importance of compassion and forgiveness. It's God's role to judge, not ours. What I see as I study this story is that as we come to Jesus, as we draw into a relationship with him, we can be vulnerable. He loves us in all our brokenness, and he makes us feel valued and worthy of love. He does not love our sin, and he doesn't validate our actions. He says, go and sin no more. He loves us, and then he shines his light in the dark places of our hearts, and he gives us a new life with meaning, value, and purpose. His grace and mercy lead us to seek his truth and purpose for our lives. Jesus' mission was to come to a world that was in complete misunderstanding to God, of God, to demonstrate to them what a father is really like, what he has always been like and will always be like. The best way to know God is to learn to know Jesus. Jesus' life and death give the clearest picture to be found anywhere of what God is like. He said, if you know me, then you know my Father also. John 14, 7. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved by more spending. His way instead of our way leads us to a beautiful life, a life where we have confidence in our vulnerability and imperfections because he makes us feel loved and valued. As I place my value in him, I know that I am loved, unconditionally loved, and he tries again and again and again to reach us with his love. Now let's turn to Luke 10, 38-42, where we find another story of a woman at the feet of Jesus. The story of Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha. Reading from the NLT Life Application Study Bible. 
As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha and Mary were known for their hospitality, and hospitality was a social requirement in their culture. It was considered shameful to turn anyone away from your door. Martha worried about details. She wished to please, to serve, to do the right thing, but she often succeeded in making everyone around her feel uncomfortable. Perhaps she feared shame if her home did not measure up to expectations. She tried everything she could to make sure that wouldn't happen. As a result, she found it hard to relax and even harder to accept Mary's lack of cooperation in all the preparations. Finally, Martha is so frustrated, she asks Jesus to step in. But his response was gentle as he shined his light on her attitude, showing her that her priorities, though good, were not what was most important. Mary was right where she needed to be, in her brokenness, still silent and listening at the feet of Jesus. Mary was vulnerable enough to walk away from the social norms of her time she found her value at the feet of Jesus. The beauty of a relationship with Jesus as we sit with Jesus is that if we can find the strength to let go, sit at his feet and let him speak truth into our lives, he will take our trials, our struggles, our brokenness and shape us into the women and men that we are meant to be. If we're vulnerable enough to let go of our way, and seek his way. He will make beautiful things from our dust. There have been so many times in my life where I have felt more like Mary. I would just want to be still, sit at the feet of Jesus, and listen to the truth that he's speaking into my heart, but I'm too busy prioritizing everything else instead of finding time with him and letting him speak his truth into my heart. I find myself seeking value in how much I can accomplish instead. If you ask my husband, he would say that I'm a Martha. I love opening my home to others, and I love cooking in the kitchen. Hospitality is one of my gifts, and I often feel that it's something I'm called to share. I love having friends over to my home and feel the pressure to make everything perfect. I take pride in creating new recipes, making dinners from scratch, decorating birthday cakes, and making my boys feel special by throwing big birthday parties where I spend weeks looking through Pinterest for amazing superhero party ideas and DIY projects. Yet, I feel that there's still more that I could do. It's just not enough. I push myself to the maximum possible limit with my work days, cramming 30 hours a week of work into 2.5 days so I can have two precious mommy days with my boys and a weekend with my family. I prioritize the Sabbath and make every effort to teach my boys the value of this beautiful day. I find myself volunteering as much as I can to teach Sabbath school, coordinate mom's groups, or give my time to be present and go on field trips with my boys. 
I even find time to run 30 miles a week in the middle of it all, yet there's still this feeling that it's never enough. I find myself picking up all the messes in my home, the lost Cheerios, the tiny Legos scattered across my house, and the dirty clothes that get thrown around my boys' rooms because I'm not able to relax until the work is done, and I find myself exhausted at the end of the day and still feeling it's not enough. Where do you find your value? Is it found in your perfectly coordinated outfit and how well you present your life on Facebook or Instagram? Is your worth found in your possessions, your big house or your brand new car? Is your worth found in your children or how well behaved they may be? Is your worth found in how many hours you spend at the office? Is it found by the friends you choose or not choose to keep? Is your worth found by how many Sabbath school classes you teach or the fact that you're worthy enough to serve as an elder in your church? Is your worth found in the amount of tithe or donations you choose to give? Is your worth found by the rules you follow or choose not to follow? Jesus gives us a better way. It is at the feet of Jesus where we find love, mercy, grace, and healing. It is at the feet of Jesus where we find our value. Because with Jesus, regardless of what you do or not, you are worthy of love. Because you are a child of God, you are valued and you're worthy. That's it. With that, we can rest in God. That we are loved, valued, and enough. The words that I hear from my Heavenly Father are... Hello, beautiful. You are enough because I see you and I love you. And when you fall down, I will be here to pick you up. You have no need to fear. Beautiful things will come from this, but put your faith in me. I will part the waters and make a way for you. The path may not be easy, but I will never leave you or forsake you. Psalm 62, 5 to 8. Let all that I am Wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. From Proverbs 31 Ministries, when we rest in God rather than our own abilities, we gain hope and acquire strength to face the challenges of life. When God becomes our fortress, nothing can shake us. When we're feeling unappreciated, unimportant, or rejected, it helps to remember that God's love speaks. You only need to listen and he will guide your life. Whether you're a mother, grandmother, sister, or daughter, Single, married, widowed, divorced, whether your loved ones value and cherish you or wound you with broken behavior, no matter what, God loves you, knows you, and cherishes you. You are beautiful. You are loved. You are valued. You are enough. Whether you're a father, grandfather, brother, son, single, married, widowed, divorced, whether your loved ones value and cherish you or wound you with broken behavior, no matter what, God loves you, knows you, and cherishes you. 
Our hope for a better way to live comes from the Lord. Hope for change, hope for joy, hope for love, hope for success, hope for our lives, a beautiful, meaningful life comes from our Heavenly Father. We can have confidence that our faith will give us the strength to push through every hard and trying circumstance. We all fall down. We all make mistakes. We all have broken behavior. We use poor judgment and harsh words. But Ezekiel 36:26 gives me hope. It reminds us that God is in the business of making things new, including our hearts. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. No matter where you are in your life right now, God offers you a fresh start. He's committed to scooping out the impurities within us so that we have more room to house more of his spirit, a greater portion of his love. The process may be painful, but here's the good news. When God empties us, he doesn't leave us that way. He offers to fill us with something new. God's excavation is always intended for transformation. Amy Carroll from Proverbs 31 Ministries writes, God is calling us from the hollowness of self-made perfection to the wholeness of God-given completion. He is doing a perfecting work in us, freeing us day by day from our false image of perfection until we live in the freedom, joy, and fullness of life for which we were made. While our pursuit of perfection and a flawless image drains us of energy, God's work of perfecting fills us with peace. We can trust that God is big enough to turn even our flaws into something usable and to redeem the failures of our past. Living in God's image, the beautiful, unique women he created us to be is a huge step towards true maturity. I recently read another story about motherhood and how it transforms us. I don't know about you, but as a mother, I believe God uses the daily demands of motherhood to excavate the garbage in our souls our selfishness. I cannot think of a more self-sacrificing job than being a mother or parent. Our lives are turned upside down as we give all that's within us to comfort and care for our children. Our perfectionism. Our bodies become forever changed after making the choice to carry our children and we trade our firm abs for stretch marks. Our pride. We're forced to admit that we don't have it all together all the time. We don't have all the answers, and maybe my way is not the best way. It's humbling, and it can leave us feeling insecure, confused, or conflicted. For me personally, I always knew I wanted three children. Growing up with a family of five, I treasured my two siblings, and all I ever dreamed of was having three of my own. I was babysitting at the age of 12, camp counselor through high school. I decided I wanted to be a speech-language pathologist in college. After graduate school, I specialized in working with children birth to three. Having our first son was everything I anticipated motherhood to be, and I entered into this phase of my life with, a, with gratitude and a I-got-this attitude. I remember that same time in my life, seeing photos posted on the internet of children gone wild. 
paint spread across living rooms, flour scattered across kitchens, children covered head to toe in permanent marker, and I thought, where are their mothers? It wasn't until I was pregnant with my second child that I felt it, anxiety and fear. And if anyone has ever been through depression, you may agree, it feels a little like you're drowning. I was overwhelmed, sad for no reason, and lonely. My OB told me that I was at risk for postpartum depression. Knowing that depression, anxiety, and stress all run in my family, I was not willing to let it take me down because Christian sins are not weak, and Christian sins find a way to make the impossible possible. It took me at least six months of daily sleep, sunshine, and exercise to pull me out of it, and I took pride that I did it on my own, and it became my soapbox and sermon to other mothers, my quick fix to solving mental health, sleep, sunshine, and exercise. Then I had my third child. This was the year that my Heavenly Father taught me a lesson. He gave me my Mission Possible Baby, who was climbing on top of the kitchen table to throw apples from my fruit bowl at 12 months, climbing on the countertops and making his way to the refrigerator so that he could get to the cookies on top by 18 months, and <clears throat> then <clears throat> unlocking our front door so he could go to the park by himself at 6.30 a.m. by the age of two, and then by the age of three, telling me he didn't need me to drive him to the farm anymore because he could do it himself. That is the year that my compassion for others began to really grow. I started to let go of trying to make things perfect and started to embrace the imperfection. I became more vulnerable to the fact that I didn't need to mop my floors three times a week. The dishes could sit on the counter instead of going directly into the dishwasher. My beautiful vegetable garden became a dig box full of dump trucks, and I realized that my boys can get themselves dressed without having me coordinate their perfect outfits. And I found that sometimes mothers feel better about walking into your dirty house than a clean one. I started to see the struggle in the eyes of mothers, and the message of me too became the greatest source of connection to my brokenness and theirs. It's okay to admit that I'm a mess, because so are you. And there is compassion and strength in that vulnerability. We need to let ourselves be seen, to be vulnerable, because that is how we grow. God's grace is for all of us. We need to make a choice to give grace, the same grace God gives us to others in our community, regardless of their brokenness, because that is how we build connection and community. But has our church become a place that allows others to come as they are, to be vulnerable, that we may not have it all together all the time and that we're desperately looking for love, hope, joy, and belonging? It's difficult for others to feel safe coming as they are, to be vulnerable about their personal struggles, wondering if they are alone in their brokenness. We have not made church a place for broken people, and for some it feels more like a country club where you have to have it all together in order to be part of the club. Somehow, too many churches and Christian communities are not communicating the love message effectively into the lives of real people. 
Broken people do not have it all together. No one has it all together because not a single one of us have lived a life without sin. God is never done with us, and if at any point we feel that we have it all together, there's yet another lesson that we have to learn. As a church, we need to create a safe place for ourselves and for others to be vulnerable. Our response to vulnerability is to treat others that they're special, to honor others. We need to stop talking and we need to start listening. We need to get face-to-face with people and learn who they really are. We need to understand that we are all unique with different strengths and weaknesses. We need to develop compassion and communicate differently with each other by tuning in to the needs of others. By tuning into others, we see the needs of others. When we look beyond ourselves, we see the single mother who desperately needs a village working full-time waiting tables so she can provide for her children. We see the homeless on the streets and realize they are somebody's son, somebody's brother, somebody's father. We see the truck driver who just lost his wife and children. We see the lawyer who's been struggling with an addiction and his wife just told him, I can't do this anymore. We see the woman who was never loved as a child and struggles with the confidence to make it on her own. We see the mother who's barely holding it together as she wrestles three children in a grocery store, we see the father who doesn't know how to be a father because he never had one. And we see the young girl in church in the short skirt with her red toes who's just seeking acceptance and love. And that was me. After my parents' divorce, my father accepted a new job and moved to Weimar. My impression of Weimar through the grapevine was that women were expected to arrive in full submission with a dress from their neck to their toes, without makeup. It's amazing how gossip works, how information gets twisted from one mouth to the next. However, with the information I was given, I developed a bias against this place. On my first weekend to visit my dad, I made sure to find the red nail polish, the one I was never allowed to wear, and packed my shortest black skirt for church. I still remember having the thought, go ahead and judge me. You don't know my heart. Sabbath morning came, and I was just waiting for my dad's response as I walked into his living room. My father looked at my short skirt and red toes, and do you know what he did? I still remember the expression on his face. He smiled, he put his arms around me, and said, nice toes. Then he proudly took his children to church. In my reluctance to communicate my brokenness, as I tested the boundaries with my own agenda, my father's response was love, and I felt valued. Our response to broken behavior, to vulnerability, should be love. Daring to love doesn't justify the actions of others, it frees you. Live love is not a billboard for anything goes, it's a commitment to love. Our confidence doesn't come from doing everything right or having it all together, our confidence comes from knowing that we are loved. And how does that change our marriages, the relationships with our children, and the lives in this community when we have the confidence that we are loved, that we are valued, and that we're enough? Jesus gives us that confidence. 
that we're loved. And he is the model for perfect love, love that is patient, kind, forgiving, slow to anger, love that trusts, hopes, and always perseveres. As we draw closer to Jesus, as we sit at his feet, it is the Holy Spirit that speaks truth into our lives. As a mother, as a wife, as a friend, as a member of this community, I want to live that love. We are all called to live that love. I will be kind. My love will be patient. My love will be slow to anger. My love will persevere. My love will not dishonor my family. My love will not be self-seeking. My love will not be easily angered. My love will keep no record of wrongs. My love will always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere for my husband, for my children, for my family, for my home, for my church. As a community, we need to live that love. We are called to live love, not just in this community, but in every interaction we have with others. We will be kind. Our love will be patient. Our love will be slow to anger. Our love will persevere. Our love will not dishonor our family. Our love will not be self-seeking. Our love will not be easily angered. Our love will keep no record of wrongs. Our love will always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere. By showing empathy, love, and understanding to the lives of others, we help each other grow. We can be confident. We can let ourselves be seen to be vulnerable so that we can grow. Our prayer every morning should be Psalms 143.8. Let me hear of your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. As we entrust our lives to him, he shows us how to live that love. We know our hearts and the truth of who we really are, our own stories of struggle and brokenness. We need to see that the only thing that is good within us is Jesus, and he is the one that shows us how to love others because he is love. If you could see the work that his grace has done in my life, you would know just how far I've come. And he gives us all that same grace, never-ending grace, which is beyond what we can imagine. We have confidence to entrust our lives to him because his love, grace, and mercy transforms us and gives our lives meaning and purpose. We have nothing to fear because we find our value at the feet of Jesus. Come, sit at the feet of Jesus. You are loved, you are valued, and you're enough. <laughs>